You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson featuring Bjorn Lomberg. Bjorn, thank you for joining us. You're one of the world's leading public intellectuals. You shot to prominence nearly 20 years ago when you wrote a magnificent work, uh, The Skeptical Environmentalist, in which you dared to question the evidential basis of a lot of widely accepted ideas in environmental science. Now, since then, you've founded and you're now president of the US-based think tank, a virtual think tank, as I understand it, uh, the Copenhagen Consensus Center. And you look at cost-effective strategies uh, for fighting some of the greatest challenges facing humans around the globe today, including disease, poverty, and climate. First point I'd like to make is that whilst we're very absorbed with climate, uh, and we'll end up talking about a bit, that a bit today, there are innumerable challenges facing us. In our loathing in the self-west, uh, self-loathing in the West today, though, we seem to forget that there are causes for real optimism. Some extraordinary progress has been made, particularly in the area of, uh, of starvation, of diet, of um, even education, and life expectancy. It's not all bad news. Well, actually, it's mostly good news. And, and I think that's what we often forget. And it's an important part of the conversation in order to be able to get to the point where we talk about, so what should we do for the future? It's important to recognize that so far, things have actually been progressing amazingly. Uh, you mentioned life expectancy, and in some ways that's probably the most important single thing, because what do you care about? It's that you live or you don't die. And from since 1900, we've seen uh, global life expectancy go from 32 years on average to 72 today. We have more than doubled our lifetime here on planet Earth. You and I each got two lifetimes. I think that's just outstandingly amazing. And of course, we're better fed. We have a much greater chance of surviving. We have much better education. Uh, there's virtually nobody who's illiterate. But we also have an opportunity to do things that we just couldn't imagine, uh, you know, even a couple of decades ago. So the idea here is to recognize there's a lot of things that are moving in the right direction. This does not in any mean way belittle that there are still lots of problems. But it does mean that we can stop having the sense of, oh, it's, you know, it's never going to work. It's just the end of the world all the way around. No, it's not. There are problems and we should fix those but we should also recognize fundamentally things are moving in the right direction. And indeed, you mentioned that uh, we have better opportunities, but it's not just us. The progress in the less fortunate communities in the world has been staggering. Yeah. Quite yes. staggering. Sorry, sorry. So I, I, I'm in the habit of saying we when we talk about the world, but yes, you're right. This is especially true in the developing world. Remember, uh, you know, 200 years, virtually the entire planet was below $1 a day, which we call extreme poverty today. Virtually everyone on the planet were extremely poor. Yeah. Just, what, what is it, 28 years, no, 20, 30 years ago, 1990, uh, there was still about 24% of the world's population that was extremely poor. Today, that number for the first time in history is below 10%. There's still something to be done, but of course, this we forget. Because we are faced, and now let's use the we in the, in the rich Western world where we're often focusing on things as saying, oh, there's plastic in the oceans and there's climate change and there's uh, pesticides and there's all these other things. And these are all correct and real issues. But you need to get a sense of proportion 
and realize to most people, life has become immensely better. And that is an important achievement. And of course, we must be able to remember we shouldn't lose track of that while we fix the remaining problems. I think there's another aspect of this, and I'd, I'd welcome your views on it. In many ways, that progress has been the result of, of, of something that we now hear endless negativity about in the West. It's actually been Western ingenuity, Western science, Western farming practices uh, and uh, agronomy uh, and land management know-how and Western compassion. We never stop hearing about how terrible we are when particularly if you listen to public broadcasters uh, and certain parts of the press today and then social media seems to decry everything we've achieved. It seems that that uh, somehow or other, the West is responsible for every evil known to man, and yet in reality, most of this improvement has been driven by Western know-how and the willingness to take it abroad and, and better other people's lives. See, I, I, I don't know whether I think, I, I think it's a, a slightly divisive conversation to say that it's Western science that have brought this in. It's science. Uh, it's the fact that we, you know, and we discovered this uh, hundreds of years ago when we realized it's actually better to look at this, uh, at nature and ask, does this work or does this not work? And accept nature's answer instead of, you know, making a dogmatic discussion of saying, oh, it should work. So it has worked uh, and, and thereby actually uh, 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 depriving you of any opportunity to get more progress. This is, you know, we, we, <laughs> we're going to say we, as in Western, uh, we're also the guys who, who did the, uh, uh, the Inquisition and, you know, the, the, the closed-mindedness of much of religion. So I, I think in some sense you could say what is fortunately happening is that science, and a lot of people across the world accept that you should look at science, use science as a way to make better progress. But it's not just natural science because it's very easy to sort of get absorbed with the with the uh, 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 logs of the world, the green revolution, the fact that we managed to get better yields, better varieties that actually bred much higher yields of, of both wheat and rice and many others. Uh, but it's also social innovation. It's the fact that we have social science that let us pick smart policies, that is policies where we, for every dollar or whatever your currency is, for every dollar spent do a lot of good, or at least have the knowledge of how we do that. And I think it's that whole range of areas where we know both what we do in the science part and what we do in the, on the social science part, the economics, if you will, that has led us to have the opportunity of having really, really successful societies. Now, of course, at the same time, we have failed miserably in many, many ways. Uh, we've, we, you know, we had a, a, a terrible catastrophe with Second World War. We had the, the whole uh, you know, sort of uh, 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 repression in the Soviet Union. We have had lots of failed states. Uh, you know, Argentina, where, which, I've, which I've visited, have been, you know, was one of the richest countries in the beginning of the 19th century, and it's kind of stayed there ever since. Venezuela is a great example of, of, of almost entirely failed state. There are lots of failures, but in some sense, it just shows you how much further we can come when we do this right. And I think that's the message that we should get across. We can do this, and we can actually do a lot of good. I think you accept the point that you're making. I'm not trying to say that we've got everything right, not for a moment, but I am trying to say that we seem to have reached a point where everything that, is, that the West has stood for, believed in, sought to do, 
Now, you would argue, for example, as you just did, that uh, religion has been an overall negative. I would say there are many, many positives. Examples oh, of incredible oh, 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 compassion oh, yeah. being taken yes. forward, a desire to educate, and the social outcomes have been remarkable as well. Uh, for example, uh, if you look at the education levels now across the world, they've improved dramatically over the last 30, 40 years, dramatically. And uh, women still don't get quite the same opportunities as men, but by and large now, they're not far behind in terms of the educational opportunities that they're offered as well. Room for improvement. But, the, but we need, I think, to balance this whole thing up with a much more nuanced approach. What worries me and where I'm going with all of this is that we're so bound up with emotion and so bound up with the issue of the day that I'm beginning to wonder how we ever get good policy out of the mm. current state of the broad debate. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and look, uh, uh, I'm not an expert in this, so this is just my you know, two cents in this. I think one of the problems that we have in much public policy is that uh, we blame everyone uh, for all kinds of things and we make easy judgments and we, we often you know, sort of go on a tweet rather than uh, actually focus on, on the whole complicated uh, connections. And, 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 and that's why I'm, I'm, I, was, I was sort of uh, uh, getting up about the our Western science, because I think that's sort of needlessly dividing. I think it's much, much better to point out that science works as opposed to, and the religion that I was talking about was more sort of the, you know, the guys who imprison uh, Galileo kind of religion. I'm not, I'm not dissing any, any sort of modern religion, but we certainly had our fair share of, uh, of crusades and other things. And so it's much more about realizing, let's get everybody on board instead of trying to divide. And I think that works. And that's where we really need to have this conversation to get people to realize, look, if you follow the advice, that we can see what works both on science, but also on the economics of this, we can do much, much better. And if we don't, we're very, very likely to do really badly. Uh, it's hard to argue with that. Now, your think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus Center, you actually focus on cost-benefit analysis of problem solving, which is really interesting. Now, we're agreeing, both of us, that there are any number of problems to be challenged uh, you know, and to, to, to try and grapple with. But how do you go about bringing a rational approach to these issues, including economic analysis, when so often the very idea of rationality seems to have given way to emotion? So I, my sense is, again, uh, that there's a lot of emotion in many, many things. You know, why do you worry about this particular issue? Very often it's because it looks more scary on TV. It has more cute animals or more crying babies or more groups with great PR. And our two cents on this is really to just realize maybe we should also look at how much will it cost to fix the problem and how much good will that do? And realizing that there's almost an infinite number of things that you could focus on, but only a limited amount of time and especially money, we should focus that attention and those resources on the things that'll do the most good first. So what we try to do is basically give a menu to society. And in, in some sense, it's really simple. You know, imagine if you walk into a restaurant, you get a menu and you, know, you can pick all these different things and you, that's nice. You can say, oh, I, I could have the lobster or I could have the caviar and champagne or I could just have you know, the spinach. The, but the point is you actually know how much you're gonna get and how much it'll cost you. Imagine if you had that menu, but there are no prices, no sizes. 
Now, unless you're on a really good expense account, you're probably going to feel slightly uncomfortable because you have no idea what you're going to pay and how much you're going to get. So in that sense, we're saying this is a little bit like what you see in the public conversation. You see this, oh, wouldn't it be great to do something about plastics in the ocean? Or shouldn't we do something about you know, uh, child malnutrition? Or what about climate change or this, this, that, and the other? But there's no sense of what's the price and how much good will this actually do? So we try to put the prices and sizes back on the social menu. Then at the end of the day, that's obviously a political conversation. What do you want to spend? You know, just because we're the guys who say, you know what, spinach is really cheap and it's really good for you. Doesn't mean, you know, you might not like spinach, but at least if you pick the champagne and caviar, you'll know that there's going to be a lot less left over for all the other things you can do. So really what we've tried to do is, uh, is look at where can you spend resources and do the very most good. And I understand you've done a lot of work on the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals. Uh, I understand that there's an extraordinary number of them, getting on for what, 150, 169. 169 of them. 169, yeah. Now plainly, uh, you know, they're going to have to be somehow or other prioritised and they need to be done so on the basis of reason if you're not going to waste resources and, and miss opportunities and potentially create even bigger problems. You've done a lot of work. Would you like to summarise for us a little of how you've gone about that and what conclusions you've drawn? Yeah. So, so uh, uh, because we do priorities for the world and the UN set out to do uh, their next set of targets from 2016 to 2030, called the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, we actually work with the UN, a lot of the UN ambassadors, uh, to try to you know, basically tell them, don't promise everything to everyone, everywhere, all the time. Because we can't do that for the exact reasons you just told. And of course, the UN ended up doing just exactly that. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of understanding. Yes, this is a really good idea. Uh, so you know, I met up with a lot of the UN ambassadors. But the problem was the UN was not actually trying to do the best set of targets. The Norwegian ambassador was there to get Norway's four targets in there, and the Brazilian ambassador was there to get Brazil's five targets in there, and so on. And that's of course why we ended up with 169 targets, promising everything to everyone. But as you point out, we're not actually going to do it. The whole cost of that is estimated to be about two and a half trillion dollars a year. Realistically, we have about $150 billion a year for this. this. This is all US dollars, right? So fundamentally, we don't have money for 95% of what we promised. And that's, of course, the outcome of promising with your heart instead of with your brain, with your reason saying what will actually work. So we work with 50 teams of economists, uh, several Nobel laureates, to try to look at where do you get the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, we published a big book, lots of papers, uh, and you know, most people are never going to re uh, uh, read it. But I actually brought uh, just one. So we, 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 we summarized this into just one page. Uh, and this is, uh, I should just say, uh, a lot of our researchers are a little annoyed that you know, two years of work uh, ends up like a tiny bit of one page. Uh, but that's, of course, how you get politicians' attention. So we have all, uh, and I, I'm sure you'll provide a link for this, but we have all the different targets out here. Yeah. And for each one of them, there's a cost-benefit analysis that basically says, so how much is this target going to cost and how much good is this target going to provide? Not just in monetary terms, not just in economics, but also in social benefits and in environmental benefits. Now, if we've done everything right, what you basically see here is, 
each line is how much good do you do for a dollar there. So long lines, good. Short lines, not so good. It's really a simple way to look over what should you be focusing on in the world. And so some of the top outcomes, the very top one is free trade or actually freer trade, you know, the Doha round. Which would if, be anathema to a lot of the people who seem to have megaphones today. Oh, oh, oh uh, uh, not the least Trump and many others. But the reality is if you get more free trade, we can all specialize, we can all gain from uh, the, the, uh, the terms of, of trade, and we can actually make the world a lot better off. We actually estimate this single intervention could reduce poverty by 160 million people. It could get every person in the developing world, on average, $1,000 richer per person per year in 2030. This is an astounding opportunity. Of course, we're entirely foregoing it. So this is one of the many things that we should focus on. I'm not saying this is going to be easy. I'm not saying this is going to be cheap because we'll have to pay off, especially rich Western farmers, but also many other interest groups. That has co real costs, but it would probably be a phenomenal investment. Likewise, we also look at uh, 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 family uh, planning. So fundamentally, there's the issue that about 215 million women around the world still lack access to family planning. So they say we would like more family planning. If we provided that for them, it doesn't mean they would all use it. Some of them husbands would probably tell them, no, you can't use us. But it would cost about $3.6 billion. The benefits would be both the woman would be able to space her kids better. She would die less in childbirth. We estimate about 150,000 moms wouldn't die. Because she spaces her kids better, it means about 600,000 kids won't die uh, later on in their uh, early childhood years. But it also means that when you space your kids better, they get better treatment, they grow up learning more, because there's also more capital because there are fewer kids per year, you also have a demographic dividend. That means higher economic growth. If you add up all of these benefits, every dollar spent will do $120 worth of social good. And the list goes on. So, you know, there's a few other things. Let me just mention two others. Uh, tuberculosis is often one of the things that we don't think about at all. Uh, you know, it's something that we fixed like 100 years ago in the rich West. Uh, but tuberculosis is globally one of the biggest killers. It's probably killed about a billion people over the last 200 years. And today, it's the biggest infectious disease killer. Not HIV, not malaria, tuberculosis. But we've stopped caring about it. It doesn't have much press. Nobody really thinks about it. Yet 1.6 million people die every year. And these are typically people in their prime. It's the parents who've just gotten kids who are working, who are producing, and they die. We know how to fix this very, very cheaply. For about $8 billion, you could save 1.6 million people from dying every year. And most of them also, so about 7 million people not getting sick. This is a fantastic investment. Every dollar spent, would do $43 worth of good. I'll, I'll give you one more and then I'll shut up, but I, I can talk for, uh, on, on this for a long time. But you know, fundamentally, if you invest it in, in uh, uh, nutrition, uh, not surprisingly, nutrition is a good thing. It's a terrible thing to be starving. But especially that's true for really, really young kids, so zero to two-year-olds. The reason why is if you invest for, in kids getting better food, they will develop their brains better so when they go to school, even if it's a crappy school, and probably will be, they will learn more. 
and when they then come out, they will be more productive in their adult lives. Now, we actually know that from a study that's you know, uh, slightly horrendous, but also amazingly fascinating. Uh, so late 1960s, American researchers went to Guatemala and they picked out two small rural villages and gave the kids there good food. And you can sort of hear where this is going. Uh, they picked out, out two other small rural villages nearby and gave the kids essentially sugar water. Uh, and you know, obviously you couldn't get this past the ethical committee today, but our research has gone back and refound those kids. They're now in their late 30s, early 40s. And on all accounts, they're better off. So you know, they have better marriages, they have better jobs, uh, they're happier. Uh, if they're women, they've had fewer miscarriages. But crucially, what we also expected, because they, didn't, they got better food, they did better in school, if you were stunted, we now know that you make about 60% higher wages. So every dollar spent, it'll cost you about $97 to feed a child from zero to two year olds on average across the world. If you do that for every child, every child on average, not all of them is gonna be helped, but on average, you will make them more than $4,400 better off. So every dollar will do $45 worth of good. Again, we're simply pointing out, look, there's some incredible investments out there they're kind of boring. They're not, you know, they're not the things that we talk about. They just happen to ha help millions of people, the billions of people who face these risks that we can help very, very cheaply. And this need not be you or it need not be me or DFAT or anything. It could also be their own uh, you know, nations that spend this money. But it's really investments in smart policies that will help make the world a lot better. Yeah, it's uh, going back to some of the earlier remarks. In a much expanded global population, now over 7 billion, uh, we still have 800 million or so under or malnourished. And that includes around 50 million stunted children, their opportunities blighted forever. But to work back through this, um, I mean, Bill Gates makes the point that agricultural research and know-how is the quickest, most effective way of lifting people out of poverty. And the uh, the six biggest nations in terms of contributions to agricultural research and extension around the world includes Australia. It's one of the few areas where we punch. With, with the big seven, I said six, but to his great credit, number seven, uh, or one of the seven, is in fact Bill Gates himself, or Bill and Melinda wow. Gates. So their efforts there are extraordinary. But there's something else I want to draw out. It goes back to my earlier remarks. And again, I, I, it is not my objective here to say that the West got everything right. But in essence, what you're arguing here is that properly applied, properly picked up, properly worked through, capitalism is what lifts people out of poverty. I would argue that's what's driven so much of the improvement. Now, for reasons that I understand, actually, in some ways, flatlining wages, exploding house prices, many young Australians and many young Westerners are very, very critical of capitalism. And yet, in many ways, here you make the point that opening up trade, opening up the opportunity to exercise or engage in making a profit, that's what it boils down to. I mean, if, if the rules are fair, I produce two sweaters and only need one, uh, you've brought home a bundle of meat that's more than you can eat, so we do an exchange, we both profit. If the rules are done properly... Actually, I think I want one and a half meat for your sweater. <laughs> well, we'll bargain about that. <laughs> yes. uh, and the problem today is that um, some government will come along and slap a rule on which restricts both of our freedoms, 
because so often we won't do what we ought to do without coercion. But the point I want to make here is, I think, the simple one that um, properly understood, we need a much more balanced approach as we think through the challenges that confront us. Because there are many, and I come to this point now, who would say, well, you're simply undervaluing the great crisis. You're not understanding that the crisis, the one we've got to deal with is climate change, no matter what it costs. Yeah. If, if I can just, I'll, I'll just answer your, uh, your, your conversation about uh, capitalism, because I, I'm, I'm probably a lot less or uh, a lot less sort of uh, focused on specific epithets. I think capitalism in some ways are, is fantastic. And obviously, as you also alluded to, there's some problems. Uh, so, so what we're simply looking at is what kind of policies would make an amazing amount of change uh, when you apply it on the margin? Now, very clearly, uh, free trade, as you point out, more capitalism is a great thing. But you should also recognize that one of the reasons why we don't fix, for instance, uh, tuberculosis is because the people who have TB and also the people who are often starving are the people who have no money. And so in a capitalist society, they have no vote. And that's where we could say, well, we also need to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I, I think there's a real argument for saying capitalism is certainly the driver of much of our wealth, but we also have other instincts and we also have other things we want to do. And that's exactly where we ask, where can we do the most good? So, so capitalism is part of the answer. Uh, and we should certainly recognize that if we didn't have capitalism, if we didn't have the explosive growth that we've had for the last 200 years that have you know, taken us from basically, uh, 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 that's not entirely true as sort of like a, 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 a Iron Age society, but, or, but, but a very, very different kind of society to the amazing society that we have today. We have to recognize that that happens because of capitalism, but we also have a lot of things that we want to sort of tinker with and 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 there's some real tinkering opportunities that can do good even so, even the the father of capitalism is often seen as adam smith of course uh, yeah, yeah wealth of nations but he, he would be the first to agree everyone forgets oh, yeah. he wrote a book before the wealth of nations Moral yeah sentiment pointing out that we had to be if you like prepared to operate within a you know a moral universe we had to have a yeah. moral compass yeah. You know, we had to. And, and like, you also recognize that there's lots of, you know, you need a yeah. lot of rules to make yeah. sure that the, mm. the viciousness of businessmen don't just yeah. go off. Yeah. And there's uh -huh. lots of things. Yeah. But, but absolutely. So, so, uh, so back to your question on, on the climate. Well, because, before right, no, before you, I do, no, yes. just to make an observation yes. about it. You, you've just very interestingly, I think, and relevantly pointed out the Industrial Revolution and so forth that's absolutely transformed the way we live. Now, of course, the, the, the problem with, the, with that has been, as we now perceive it, it's really written on the back uh, of fossil fuels. Yes. It's been made possible by new forms of energy, cheap, highly powerful and effective forms of energy. I wonder really whether the world's population could have risen more than above, say, a billion or so if it were not for that industrial know-how plus fossil fuels. Now, we hear people in the West now uh, saying we should never, ever have discovered fossil fuels. We'd be better off if we'd never got there as they've jetted into a conference yes. to say such things. The reality is that uh, fossil fuels have enabled us to get to this point. We now have a whole bunch of very difficult issues to confront. Yes. So, so the, the first thing is, uh, and I think you're absolutely right, we have no sense of how much energy 
has helped us escape poverty. Uh, so uh, so uh, uh, um, Matt Ridley uh, wrote in his sort of Rational Optimist, uh, why was it fun to be Louis XIV? And I'm not quite sure whether it was fun, but I can certainly see if, if I were back then, I'd probably want to be him rather than anyone else. And, and one of the points, of course, was that he had lots and lots of servants doing everything for him. You know, you had a, a whole bunch of people uh, uh, cooking his meals and cleaning his palaces and you know, doing his gardens and all that stuff. The point of that is it's really fun if you're Louis XIV, but it really sucks if you're any of the other guys who have to be the servant of Louis XIV. What energy has enabled us to do is to make a society where we can all be the kings and the machines are the servants. So, you know, if you put it in power, uh, the average uh, OCD person in the OCD, so in the rich world, has power that is equivalent to about 100 slaves or 100 servants. We have the power of 100 human beings 24-7. That's what takes us on rides. That's what washes our dishes or, you know, if you have a Roomba or whatever that uh, cleans up your house and do all these other amazing things, uh, you know, clean your, uh, your clothes. Uh, we have no sense of how much time, especially women used around the turn of last century, so around 1900. Uh, it, was, it was more than a day and probably two days just spent washing. Now we do it with a machine. We do it with lots of power. So we have to realize that the reason why the world has become so great is because we have an enormous, an abundance of power. And that enables us to all be kings rather than you know, the one being a king and everybody else being servants. But of course, the problem is that that also leads to other issues like air pollution and global warming. And I think it's important to recognize both of these because we often jump to global warming and say, oh, see, this is a terrible issue. But what was a much more terrible issue coming from the Industrial Revolution was air pollution. Air pollution probably uh, 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 had an impact, possibly killing 20% of everyone that died in London around uh, 1890. It was a terribly polluted place. Everybody wrote about it. You know, huge on, on uh, industrial revolution, but also huge on air pollution. And we still see that in the, uh, what was in 1953, I think, when, when they had the big uh, 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 soups and, you know, uh, Churchill was faced with the fact that uh, there was this crisis where, what, 6,000 people died in, in, uh, in, uh, in London in just a few weeks because of terrible coal air pollution. But we fixed that. How do we fix that? Through technology. So the simple answer is not to say, let's do without the power. It was to make better power. Now we did that partly through scrubbers on our smokestacks. We also did that by switching from coal to gas. We eventually also switched, uh, or at least some nations did, to nuclear, which pollutes even less. The idea here is to recognize that while there were problems, anyone in a heartbeat would have said, I'd rather have the Industrial Revolution and cough than just being dirt poor. But the best outcome, of course, is have the Industrial Revolution, cough, be smart, figure out a solution, and then just be rich. And that was what we did. We're now standing at the same sort of issue where we're realizing there is another pollutant that comes out of burning fossil fuels, not just the thick smoke that was obvious, but also carbon dioxide, CO2. 
which leads to a warm-up of the planet. That's absolutely incontrovertible. So let's just get that on the, on, on the table. But the question is, how big of a problem is it? And what can we do about it? And that's where I think the, the, the conversation that we have right now has sort of gone off the tracks. Uh, you know, people will tell you this is the end of the world. If you read the UN climate panel reports, it is not. The UN tells us this is a problem. It's by no means the end of the world. A problem that we then have to weigh up against the cost of actually doing something about it. And the answer, like pretty much anything that we do in human society, is you do some of it, you fix some of it, until the damage costs are lower than the additional cost if you try to fix more of it. Well, this is a really interesting area to explore right at this point in time because Australia's just had a very long hot summer and what appear to be extraordinarily bad bushfires, which have made us a global poster boy, it seems. We're being castigated everywhere for being failures on climate change. I have to say I'm gravely concerned about the nature of the public debate because it seems so driven by passion and emotion that this whole thing we've been trying to say about the need for calm, quiet reason in the face of problems has given way to, a, even amongst well-educated people, to a, the skies are falling in, it's all the government's fault, and it ignores one absolutely incontrovertible issue for Australians. We should certainly be good global citizens. We can do everything we like on the technological front, etc., etc., etc. We can try and formulate good policies, but nothing that could have been done by an Australian government in the past, today or tomorrow, is going to have any impact of any sub substantial basis at all on Australia's seasons. It's not going to happen. So in the discussion about abatement and adjustment, the reality for Australia is no matter what we try to do with abatement, we're still going to have to adjust. If we're not careful, we will make decisions that do almost nothing for abatement, but make it nearly impossible for us to adjust. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's helpful maybe to talk about something else in the bushfires because they've become so inflamed. Sorry. Uh, but but let's just uh, let's let's think about something else because th this happens constantly in the climate conversation. Uh, if you think about the U.S. Uh, and how uh, you know every time there's a hurricane, certainly Al Gore uh, used a hurricane that came out of a smokestack in his in his movie uh, as a way of saying global warming leads to hurricanes and that's terrible. And yes, absolutely, hurricanes are terrible. Uh, but remember, uh, there was actually a period from 2006. Uh, and seven years out, where the U.S. had no strong hurricanes. No strong hurricanes hit the U.S. It never happened in the history, uh, of, of the recorded history of the U.S. Uh, nobody mentioned that. It was not like people were saying, hmm, that's odd. This doesn't fit the global warming narrative. Maybe we should come out and say maybe it's not as bad. That would have been bad and wrong to say that. But what happened when Hurricane Sandy, which was just barely a Hurricane 1, hit a very populated place was, uh, you might have seen uh, Bloomberg Newsweek uh, 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 cover where it said, it's global warming, stupid. You know, so the point is, whenever something bad happens, global warming. And whenever bad things don't happen, 
we just ignore it and we talk about something else. That is not the right way to have a conversation about global warming. So I think that's where we need to realize we're not being helped by a conversation that constantly scanned the planet and say, what's the worst thing that's happened? And let's blame that on global warming. That's probably not the right way we're gonna fix this. This is the only way we're gonna make sure we inflame everyone, we get everyone very emo uh, emotional, and we're likely, as you point out, to spend enormous resources on doing almost nothing. So when we get back then to the bushfire. So fundamentally, I think we need to get a, a, a couple of facts on, 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 on the discussion first. Uh, bushfires have declined dramatically in Australia over the last 120 years. We know that because we have good statistics from about 1900. Uh, back then, about 11% of Australia's area burnt each year. Today, we know that with uh, satellites, it's about 5% that burns. All of that period, it's declined from 11% down to about 5.3% today. If you look at the current season, if you use the numbers that Guardian has, uh, has produced, which actually indicates that almost 20 million uh, hectares has burnt uh, across Australia, uh, and if you assume that some of it is not, uh, as, so you also assume that there's extra that has been burnt as a, as a, as a prescribed burning. And then of course also recognize that the whole uh, fire season is not over. If you say, all right, what is the ratio of the current fire season to the whole fire season in the satellite history, then you get that the full fire season will probably have burnt a little less than 4%. So in the very, very low end of what you normally see. Now, this is not to say that the fires were not exceptional in any regard in Victoria and New South Wales. And that obviously matters because that's where a lot of people live. Now, it's also where a lot of cameras live and that's where you, why you have this, that it's, you know, it's great TV by any standards, but it's not great to inform you because what we know is that the climate models tell us as climate change gets worse, we will see more bushfires. But the important part is they tell us we'll see more bushfires in all areas of vegetation except for tropical savanna. So maybe you should take out Northern Territory and even if you do, you get the same result as what I, I just told you here. So what we're basically seeing is we're having people say, oh, in Victoria and New South Wales, much more bushfire, global warming. But they're ignoring the fact that we actually saw less bushfire in all the other areas, although if this was really global warming, it should have been more. Now, that's one part of the conversation. But the other part, and I think the more interesting one, is to say, so what can you do about it? And there, as you also rightly pointed out, there seems to be this misconception that if we just put up a solar panel, it'll stop burn. And that, you know, if, when you just say it, you can sort of hear that, yeah, that, that doesn't sound right. But actually, we also can run it in the models. So if you look at the models for, for Australia, we estimate, as I said, 5.3% is burning right now. By the end of the century, because of global warming, if we don't do anything, uh, we'll probably have about 6% burnt every year. That's 0.7 percentage points more every year. That's definitely a problem. That's something we should talk about. How do we avoid that? But if Australia went totally carbon neutral, for the rest of the century, remember this would have an enormous cost, and we can talk about the cost in just a second. It's almost unfathomable that it would be possible, but let's just assume that Australia stopped, as the first nation in the world, stopped entirely emitting carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases 
and did so for the rest of the centuries of 2021, 2022, and there's a lot of years all the way up to 2100. If you manage that amazing feat, instead of seeing 6% burn by the end of the century, you would see 5.997% burn. So as you rightly pointed out, even in 80 years time, you would not be able to tell the difference from this fantastically costly policy. So there's something fundamentally wrong about the way that we say, all right, here's a problem. Let's fix it by cutting carbon emissions. If we, when we look at the models, actually realize the only thing the model tells us, if you cut a lot at really, really high cost, you'll have almost no impact in 100 years. That is a very bad way to help people. Now, there's a lot of smart ways to help people, and, and a lot of people have been talking about this, prescribed burns, you know, better building uh, 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 codes, uh, that you have uh, fire tunnels, that you have much more uh, surveillance, that there's a lot of other ways that you can actually do this and can do so smartly. And this is true in a lot of different circumstances. Now, again, this does not mean we should do nothing about global warming, because remember, the only benefit from doing global warming policies is not just that it burns less in Australia. There's a lot of other benefits and we should include all of those and I'm sure we'll talk about it in just a second. But when it comes down to saying, my God, look at this, these burns, let's cut a ton of CO2. It's just simply an non sequitur. It's actually almost immoral, I would say, to say we're gonna do the costliest but least effective thing to help the future victims of bushfires the least. Somehow that doesn't seem to me like compassion. It almost seems like the opposite. Yeah, I, I actually come to this as a farmer. Uh, sixth generation on one side, fifth on the other from the 1840s on. And going back through my own family's records, uh, you know, they went four months without a drop of rain in the mid-1850s, without a drop. So there was one of those unbelievably extended uh, hot, dry summers. Soil moisture levels dropped to the point where fires were endemic. Uh, and then there was the so-called federation drought in Australia. We've had these things before. Nonetheless, I mean, I, you know, for my son and my grandson, uh, if they want to carry on, we've got to try and make certain that we're actually able to do so. Now, farming in Australia has been proven to be unbelievably adaptive. So it seems to me that in large part, we need to recognise adaptation will be very important, but it won't be cheap. It itself will require us to be wise about what we do to our fundamental economic strength. Hmm. But, but again, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and look, we're both going to do adaptation. We're also going to do carbon cuts. But we should recognize what the costs are. And actually, almost everywhere, uh, adaptation turns out, I, I know you said it was not going to be cheap, but it's much, much cheaper than pretty much anything else. Uh, so these are often very, very simple things. It's often things that people will do anyway. Uh, so, you know, uh, as temperatures uh, change, you will see people change what they grow in different areas. And that's obviously one of the reasons why uh, free trade is also incredibly important because as the world changes in temperature, you're going to have people grow different things different places. Overall, we're still going to be fine, but it requires us to be able to trade with each other so that places that get hotter grow different things. And we, we may start in places that are now too cool uh, to grow anything, that they will start being grown typically with wheat or other you know, coal-loving uh, 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 products. But the whole idea here is again to recognize that 
Adaptation, absolutely. Now, cutting carbon emissions turns out to be very expensive in the short run. Uh, the, uh, the EU uh, pledged to cut carbon emissions by 20% uh, by 2020. So we're here today uh, and we've done that. Uh, and the academic estimates indicate that this probably cost about $400 billion every year in lost GDP. Now that's in Europe. That's just for Europe. And remember, uh, the, the impact of Europe during this is virtually zero. We estimate for every dollar spent, the EU manages to provide climate benefits for the world worth three cents. That's a bad deal. It doesn't need to be said, but I, I'm going to say it anyway. Right? It's a bad deal to spend a dollar and do three cents of good. And if you're going to do more, if you're going to cut more, it turns out to dramatically ramp up the cost. So as more you want to cut, the more more it'll cost. The cost grows exponentially. And, and, and I find it uh, uh, amusing. I've, I've been telling this uh, uh, a number of times here when I'm in Australia, uh, but New Zealand, as you know, have promised to go carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, remember, they also promised that in 2008 and failed, and uh, they, they, they promised to go carbon neutral by 2020 uh, in 2008, and now they're, what, 123% above uh, instead of being at 0%. Uh, but now they promised to do this in 2050, which is probably also a slightly more realistic time frame. But to their great credit, they've asked the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research to estimate how much will this cost? So remember, this is the government asking for an official estimate of how much will this cost. It turns out the average estimate is this will cost 16% of GDP. Whoa. 16%. This is unheard of. You know, obviously twice as much as what New Zealand is spending on, on just on health. It's a, a phenomenal cost. So if you look at the a, a, actual dollar cost, it's more than what New Zealand spends on everything in the public budget today. That's a lot of money. So if you take this across the entire century, they're of course going to ramp up and then they're going to stay on carbon neutral for, uh, from 2050 to the rest of the century. If you look at that cost using the UN's estimate for median estimate for uh, GDP, the total cost for New Zealand will be in the order of 5 trillion US dollars. So that's five trillion US dollars these five million people will forego over the century. Then you'll say, but at least they'll do some climate good. Yes, but only just. If you run a climate model with and without New Zealand, the impact, the difference, is that they will cut temperatures by the end of the century by four one-thousandths of a degree by the end of the century. Or to put it differently, the temperature that we would have seen in the 1st of January uh, uh, 2100 will now only occur on the 23rd of January 2100. I'm sorry, I can't get around to say 2100. But the fundamental point, you know, they basically postponed global warming by about three weeks at the end of the century. No, I don't think most people want to spend $5 trillion doing that. And that's, of course, the underlying point, I think, for a lot of this conversation, not only is it a bad idea, it's a bad deal, it's a poor way to help the world, but also it is an unsustainable way because you cannot realistically envision asking people to forego $5 trillion and expect them to support you the next 80 years. 
Now, you may be able to win the next election. You may even be able to win the next after that. But you know, most of, uh, of the countries around the world will have, what, uh, 20 elections over the next 80 years or something. Uh, certainly, we will not be able to keep that going. Someone is going to come along and say, hey, wait a minute. Shouldn't we double spending on healthcare, double spending on social, double spending on environmental uh, impacts, double spending pretty much on everything, and give tax uh, cuts and scrap this project that won't actually have any impact in 100 years? That is a very likely policy to win in the long run. That's why we need to find much better, much more effective climate policies. I'll come back to that because you've got some interesting views on the need for major technological breakthroughs. But to, there's a couple of questions out of Europe there that the very, um, I think, important points to make. Uh, one is that the age of populism is probably coming to an end in Europe. And there's, there, there, what? Uh, really? Well, <laughs> that it, sounds good. <laughs> it seems to me that what you'll see is a drift towards environmentalism. The parliament's increasingly dominated by green politicians, by, by green politics. And the likely economic result of that will be, I would have thought, more protection, um, less innovation, or, uh, but massive government expenditures. And those European economies are already very, very indebted. And so the problems you're talking about of voters rejecting, we've seen it in Paris, you know, yellow vests and all the rest of it. If you can't take your people with you, governments simply will not survive. They won't be able to take the pain. No. I, I, in that sense, I actually, I, I, I share your worry because it's very clear that the EU has committed in a very significant way to say, we're going to go green no matter what the cost. Yeah. Uh, and re remember, we're already spending a, a, a fifth of the EU budget, admittedly a very small budget, uh, and we're spending a lot of resources. So we've committed to, uh, to, to things that will cost us close to a trillion dollars. Uh, uh, so overall, uh, for climate policies by 2030, uh, we'll see, uh, you know, some estimates indicate that we'll quadruple uh, the electricity prices, which are already as high as, as, uh, as uh, the Australian, which are much, much higher than, uh, than elsewhere. I worry that we may in some ways get stuck in a place where it's really, really hard to get rid of those sorts of policies. Yes. Uh, so in, in some sense, you could see, uh, say, uh, because I was a little surprised when you said that populism is coming to an end. But yes, I recognize that we're increasingly switching towards green populism. Oh, we're going to fix all your That's problems what I mean, by, 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 yeah. by, by cutting carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And we're all going to feel good and warm and fussy. We're, of course, going to freeze, but we're at least going to feel good about ourselves. Uh, but the reality is that that will, as you point out, probably leave us a lot less well off than we would otherwise be. Now, the reality is that unless you get everyone on the planet, or at least all the major parts of the world along with us, we're not going to solve global warming through these sorts of policies. And in that sense, it seems to me that the EU is going to be pretty much alone out there in the front. Uh, you know, we're going to have a situation where is, is, uh, is uh, India or China going to upset, accept significantly lower growth rates in order to fix climate change? Probably not. America seems uh, to be going the same way. Africa obviously have many other and much more urgent issues. Uh, Latin America, I'm not quite as sure on. But the reality here is that as long as our solution is, it's going to cost you a lot and it's going to be a lot of pain. 
you're unlikely to solve the problem. And that's why I say, look, we got to find a better and smarter policy. So what we've looked at, so we did uh, a, a, a similar sort of exercise, but instead of for the world, we did it just for climate. So a prioritization of all the different climate policies you can make. We did it together with 27 of the world's top climate economists, uh, with three Nobel laureates in economics, to look at where can you spend a dollar and do the most climate good. So we don't care in this exercise about malaria or anything else, we're just looking at what, where can you do the most good for climate. And what we found was, don't do the sort of Kyoto-Paris kind of uh, agreement, because they fundamentally, they cost a lot and they only deliver a little bit of benefit. The best long-term solution is to invest dramatically more in green energy research and development. So fundamentally, the idea is to say, if you can innovate the price of new green energy down below fossil fuels, we've solved global warming, everyone will switch. You don't need any you know, these many, many meetings from Copenhagen and Paris and Kyoto to twist people's arms and tell them to do stuff that's going to be costly. They will do it because it's cheaper. If we don't get that technological breakthrough, it's going to be hard all the way. And so if, you, if you'll allow me just to give you a, a, a simple sort of metaphor, if, you, if we think back to the 1970s or late 1960s, uh, a lot of people worried about would we be able to feed the world? Uh, and, and, and the sense was a, a little bit, I, I remember my mom doing this. I, I never got the logic of that. You've got to finish your plate because, you know, there's all these hungry kids down in Africa. And I, I was totally unsure of how those two things were related. But the idea, of course, is in some ways to say, look, if you eat a little less and if we all eat a little less and then we send a little more down to Africa, then maybe they'll suffer a little less. Could you please, you know, stop eating so much? Could you please not have it so good? And then we'll probably help them a little bit. That's a really, really hard sell. And of course, that was not what actually solved the problem in Africa and elsewhere. The solution was the green revolution that we managed through technology. And as we talked about before, about much higher yielding varieties to actually let those countries feed themselves. You know, surprisingly, India was actually, it was not Africa back then. It was much it was more India. India. Yeah. Uh, we worried about India now is the world's biggest rice exporter. Now, part of it is because they use their water unsustainably. There's a lot of things you can still you know, quibble about. But the fundamental point is to recognize that you can do with technology what you cannot really do with suffering. You can't ask everyone, I'm sorry, could you suffer for the rest of the century and everybody else will promise to do the same and then we'll probably do something about global warming. That's never going to work. What you can do is to say, why don't we go away discover this great energy source that's actually green and cheaper, and then ha let everyone have it. Now, I'm not saying this is easy, and I'm not saying I have that solution because then I'd just be incredibly rich. But the point is, if we could innovate that, and we do that through government R&D, if we dramatically increase our in investment in government R&D, we could drive those innovations that over the next half century would actually come up with the solutions that would power the rest of the 21st century. But the extraordinary profile, and, and I must say the, uh, the compelling nature of the arguments that you put forward, uh, you attract those who are, um, want to paint you as a, a denier because they don't believe in this, and those who want to attack you as a denier because they say uh, you're part of the problem. You've got these two extremes, and the poor old citizen in the middle is thinking, how do we find a rational way through this? How do you find personally, a rational way through 
the two flanks when what we need to do is meet in a sensible, rational middle position? It's a, it's a good question. I don't know that I have the good answer. I, th I think in some ways, uh, uh, the New York Times uh, once uh, called me a rational, pragmatic middle. Uh, and, and the guy got a lot of flack for saying that. Uh, but, but, but the reality is that we, we have a climate conversation, as we have with many other conversations, that are dominated by the extremes. I think to a certain extent it's because it's a lot easier to feel that you're part of the tribe if, if you say, this is all a communist conspiracy and shouldn't be, you know, we, sh we shouldn't be doing this. It's just a way to take down capitalism. And the other end, it's the end of the world. And they're both wrong. Look, global warming is real. It is a problem, mostly by increasing temperatures, mostly simply because we've already adapted to the existing temperatures. If you change them, that's going to be inconvenient. That's actually going to lead to more cost in pretty much all areas of society. So yes, there is a problem. The other end, the, the ones that say this is the end of the world, no, it's not. If you read the UN Climate Panel, they'll tell you this is a problem. It's not the end of the world. They'll tell you there are issues here, but they don't foresee anything that is actually going to collapse civilization. But both of these positions are so convenient to talk about because it's so obvious which group you, uh, you, you uh, partake with and, and you can sort of paint the others as the devil and it's, you know, it's easy and it's good for, for sort of Lord of the Flies kind of uh, uh, set up, but it's not good for making good public policy. And of course, because the deniers are wrong, you end up with saying, oh, so the alarmist must be right because they're at least saying, you know, global warming is real. And then they exaggerate, but they do so for a good cause. And then that's, that's kind of fine. No, we don't get good policy by going for, from the dies, but we don't get good policy from going from the uh, extremist or the alarmist either. We get good policy when we recognize climate is real. It has a cost. Climate policy also has a cost. Let's make sure we weigh those two up against each other. That's what, and, and this is what blows my mind. Uh, William Nordhaus, who's a, uh, an economics professor at uh, Yale University, he got the one and only Nobel Prize in climate economics. And he's made this point, as is basically his career. Uh, and he's made these models and he shows us we should have a smaller carbon tax. We should have some reduction in carbon emissions, but not very much. We should leave most of it be because cutting too much will actually leave the world worse off than the extra benefit you'll get from less warming. This blows many, many people's minds, but if you think about it, it's quite obvious. Cut the first ton, good idea. Cut the last ton, you have, you know, you're almost back to the caves. It's somewhere in the middle where the smart policy lies. That's where the conversation should be as well. And, and you know, in some ways, it's just hard to be the pragmatic middle when, when you're living the age of Twitter. The whole question of how we develop technology seems to me, you know, you've pointed to that as the answer, and, and for the life of me, it seems to me to be the area where Australia has the best chance of making a major global contribution. We're a smart country. Yeah. We're a major energy exporter. In fact, our per head emissions have come down. We have deindustrialized, I'm told, faster than any other country in the OECD. And our power costs uh, have now really, they were once the cheapest in the OECD, I think they're now the most expensive. They're two to three times what they are in America. 
which must be impacting on I people's... I know that from your... Yes. Yeah, it is quite extraordinary yeah. and it's become a major issue. But there's a couple of issues to unpack there. One is that you need real resources, I think, in this technology race because that personally is the way I see it. You know, We need to dramatically reduce our reliance on fossil fuel energy, not just for climate change reasons. We're far too dependent upon fossil fuels just for feeding people. I'm a farmer. I'm mm. told that yeah. Australian farmers, one farmer feeds 600 others. We're pretty proud of that because this is a tough yeah, country to farm in. Yeah. But we use massive amounts of energy to do it. Yeah. From paddock to plate, the whole sort of business of feeding people to now, uh, globally, it's estimated that some 29% of emissions emerge from those activities. Food waste at 30 or 40%, if we could eliminate that, by implication would reduce emissions a great deal. That will involve a lot of technology. It'll involve, in some ways, smarter use of energy because it involves smarter refrigeration and transportation, which are energy intensive. Every which way you look at it, we will need real resources, it seems to me, uh, to find the technological breakthroughs. But without the technological breakthroughs, we won't get there because you will not get the political consensus necessary to take people with you. And here's another important point. It's not just the democracies that won't be able to take their people with them. It's places like China, where there's an uneasy compact, really, between the communists in Beijing and the people. And it's all based on... You provide a lot of goods for us and we'll accept you. That's right. You keep raising our living standards, keep lifting us out of poverty, keep giving us opportunities, and, and, and we will tolerate you. If that breaks down, they have the same problem every other Western country. And democracy has... You lose the support of the people, you have mayhem. The environmental outcomes, let alone the social outcomes, or put it another way, uh, the environmental outcomes of social mayhem are really attractive. Absolutely. So th there's a couple of things. Um, uh, we absolutely need technological breakthrough. Was what I'm thinking is uh, is much more sort of in the in the vein of of saying say say you could in, uh, uh, invent a fourth generation nuclear power that costs one cent a kilowatt hour. Imagine if you could do that, you would actually have a situation not only where the whole world would switch over to this new and much cheaper nuclear, and it will also have an enormous amount of other benefits because. Most of our civilizations run on cheap and available energy. So this could be an immense breakthrough for the world. There's lots of these potential ideas out there that could really make a difference. So obviously, if you, if you invest in, uh, in say, carbon uh, capture, uh, you know, the idea is that you simply uh, filtrate the air from the CO2 that's actually causing the problem. Uh, that's what trees do, but we can't just plant the whole planet because we also need places to have agriculture and there's just not enough land to do that all, everywhere. But if you artificially could remove this from the air, we can do that right now, but the cost is somewhere between $100 and $600 per ton, uh, which makes it absolutely impossible to imagine. But imagine if we could innovate that price down to, say, $5 a ton. That would mean we could solve the entire global warming problem for about $280 billion a year. Now, that's not, you know, that's not chump change, but in the global sense, it is certainly something we could actually envision that we could sort of agree on paying. It's less than what the EU is paying every year now just for their feeble climate policies, right? 
And there's lots of other technological breakthroughs. So, you know, Craig Venter, the guy who, who uh, cracked the human genome back in 2000, he has this idea that we would make genetically al uh, modified algae that basically take sunlight and produce oil. So they take you know, sunlight and CO2 from the, uh, from the ocean uh, surface, produce oil. We could grow our own Saudi Arabias out there. And then we'd harvest it and we could keep our entire fossil fuel economy but because it is harvested from CO2 they just uh, absorb, it would be CO2 neutral. Now, again, this doesn't work yet and it's certainly not cost competitive, but we just need one or a few of those technologies to come through. The idea here is to recognize that if we have those smart ideas and if we fund them, we can basically power the rest of the 21st century and we can get everybody with us. If we continue on this path, what we've done for the last 30 years, we will basically get nowhere except for spending an enormous amount of resources and achieve almost nothing. Well, thank you very much indeed. Let's round that out. Um, in essence, I think you put an unbustable proposition that we can spend a fortune for very, very little outcome if we misdirect it if we take people with us, if we spend money wisely, if we look through the technological breakthroughs, uh, we can achieve many objectives, many objectives, not just climate change abatement. Why is it, my final question, that it is so hard to re-establish the Western model of reason and divorce ourselves from the high-charged emotion that's making it so difficult to distill the real issues, the real possibilities, and the real answers. I, it, it's a big issue. So I think there's a number of things. Uh, one is, I think we probably have too fond of a recollection of what the past was like. Uh, so if you think back uh, to the 1970s, everyone thought we were going to die. You know, the, the common perception was in the 1980s, you know, We'd all be wearing uh, 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 gas masks and, you know, the forest would be gone and, you know, we'd not be able to feed the world. Billions would have died. There was that whole sense of this is the end and we really got to do something about it. This was the first Earth Day and, you know, the, uh, 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 Paul Ehrlich's of the world, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the whole start of, 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 the, uh, of the environmental movement. Uh, and yet this did not happen. But we did end up spending a lot of money badly. Remember, again, as we talked about earlier, air pollution is a big issue. And air pollution makes a lot of sense to fix. But what most money was actually spent on was on cancer prevention, because we were very, very worried from uh, Rachel Carson and onwards, uh, the whole idea DDT and many others were killing our kids, killing all the uh, nature, and basically making life unlivable. Now, it was absolutely good that we started worrying about it because we were way too uncareful with, with chemicals, but it was a rather small part of the risk, especially to humans. Uh, so uh, you know, the UN estimated it was about half of all deaths that were would be caused by cancer from pesticides. The answer was probably it was 2%. And we did really badly. We regulated badly. We spent a lot of extra resources. And if you go back even further, we've done this not with environment because that was not what we worried about before, but we've done it many, many times before. You know, John F. Kennedy won because he basically said uh, the Russians are winning and we got to spend a lot more on our military. They were not winning, but it was a very, very good sort of story. And there's reasons to believe that that could have been true, turned out not to be, but we were worried 
out of our minds. So I think we've been worried a lot of times. And in some ways, I always find a, a sort, sort of comfort in the fact that there's a lot of things outside the corridor of what we discuss that actually just chuck along and do a lot of smart things. Remember, most places, life expectancy keep increasing. We keep getting better food. We actually keep pulling people out of poverty. Things are mostly, as we started off this conversation, moving in the right direction. Uh, one of the things that uh, I find is amazing, and you'll probably find it absolutely absurd, uh, but, but I realized uh, not too long ago that most roads are built like this. You know, when you look around, and they're also shaped this way, so they actually, so they lead a, a, away water. I never knew, but some smart guy is actually taking care of that, so I don't have to worry about it. But that means, you know, I'm just driving away and, and happily, you know, there's not water most of the time on the road. And the life, life is like that with a billion different things where other people have been in there and figuring out what works and how should we do that so that things for me mostly just work. Amazingly, I get up in the morning and there's, you know, my tea and, you know, all these things that if you think about it, it's actually really, really amazing that they work. And so in some ways, I think we're focused on global warming because it's one of those places where policy breaks down. We're going to spend many percent of GDP on this and we're going to achieve almost nothing. And I really deplore that because we could have spent that, fixed climate, fixed a lot of other problems and done really well. But hey, maybe that's part of the cost of we are apparently a human species that seem to love to gorge on, 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 uh, on the apocalypse sort of thing. We've done it many times before. We're going to do badly in some sense because we don't get this right, but we get a lot of other things right. So we have a saying at my, my think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus, uh, we don't try to make the world right. We try to make it slightly less wrong. And I think that's really what this conversation is about. Try to get you know, a little bit more rationality back in the conversation. And if we can get just a little bit, because we're talking about wasting literally trillions of dollars, hey, I wouldn't mind if we could just, you know, shave off, a, I don't know, 50 or 100 billion dollars off of that. That's still billions of dollars that can be spent on smart stuff. Well, thank you very much. And let's hope it's inspired some young people who must be feeling, well, we know this, but you know, the research is out there showing it, who are utterly despairing of you know, whether they'll even have a future. It's happened before. I remember when I was young in England, the first time I went there, and compared to Australia, the pessimism, the bomb will get us, you know, acid rain will kill us. We're finished. We'll never have a future. You're so lucky to be in Australia. It didn't happen. It didn't work out that way. The great message that I hope young people pick up is that there are challenges, but the challenges are there not to be overcome by, but to overcome, to have a go at, in the Australian sense, get in, and see if we can't find answers that take us forward instead of backwards. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.